excuse me. Uh, so we're continuing in our series, excuse me. <coughs> ah, that's better. We're continuing in our series in the book of Colossians. Um, we come, actually, we're bringing it to a close this morning. Chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 6. So you please turn with me in your pew Bibles. It can be found on page 984, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Hear now as I read the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything that those who are your earthly masters not, be way, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Thank you. All right, so have you ever seen someone do an art restoration? This is when someone repairs or renovates a a work of art that already has sustained decay. It's an attempt to restore the work to its original undamaged appearance. First, they'll inspect the painting with a black light just to see what all the issues are. And then mainly to detect any varnish that has been added over the years to preserve the painting. And because over time, as the varnish gets dirty, many of the details of the painting get obscured. The canvas is removed from the structure of the frame and the holes and the damages are filled with a solution and then the conservator will take a um, new kind of a special paint that matches the original color but it, it can be removed without affecting the original paint. Then they also will add a, a, take a solution that will remove the varnish without damaging or touching the paint. And then once all this is done and the damages are renewed, a new layer of varnish is added. 
And this cohesively blends everything into the background of the painting and makes it look completely new. Once this is tedious, time-consuming process is done, the painting looks completely restored. If it's done right, the beauty of the original artwork shines through. And so in the letter to the Colossians, Paul has been writing to them about the lordship of Jesus Christ, his supremacy over creation and new creation. He reminds them of their union as believers with Christ and their submission to him as Lord. And Pastor Tim preached on the passage last week on believers putting off the old self, putting on the new self. That is, believers that are united to Christ, having submitted to him as Lord, should no longer live according to earthly practices. As a new creation in Christ, believers are given a new set of behaviors, and this is characterized by unity and love. For believers, through our union with Christ, there is a new self. The image of God that has been marred by sin is being renewed and restored into the image of Christ, who is the perfect image of God. And so what we'll see from our passage today, that our renewal in Christ results in renewed relationships, a renewed prayer life, and a renewed witness. The passage begins with what is referred to as a household code. That is a code which addresses three pairs of relationships in the household. Husband and wife, father and children, master and bond servants. Because the household was widely recognized as the basic unit of the state, there are many household, secular household codes in the Greco-Roman world. But the household code that is given by Paul in Colossians is distinctively Christian. Because believers are to live out their lordship under Christ, and this includes their existing social relationships. Our conformity into the image of Christ will result in a renewal of our relationships. And so Paul begins in verses 18 and 19 with the marriage relationship. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So first, Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands. And often in today's culture, this this is a difficult one to take. But in the first century, when Paul wrote this, this wouldn't have been controversial at all. When looking at this, it's important to note that Paul tells wives to submit. But then when he gets to children and bondservants, he tells them to obey. So wives are instructed to Submission, not to obedience. Submission is consistently used in the New Testament for a wife's responsibility to her husband. It describes a voluntary offering of oneself to another in willing support. And Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. So the submission of a wife doesn't mean that women are inferior or of lesser value of men. The Bible clearly conveys the message of equal value of men and women before God. Men and women are both made in the image of God. And this idea would have been radical in the first century, that women and men are of equal value. And so this command to submit doesn't diminish the dignity of women. Rather, a submission of a wife to her husband is part of her submission to the Lord. Submission to Christ as our Lord will bring about a change in how we live our lives. 
living a life that is fitting to the Lord means that you will be doing things that will go against the grain of the culture. And as a wife, this may mean following the lead of your husband. Your ultimate submission is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways this manifests itself is submission to your husband. We see this consistently in the scripture. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here, he tells us that Christ took on a subordinate role in his incarnation. So clearly, this doesn't diminish his co-equality with God, let alone his dignity or worth. And Paul gives a similar household code as the one in Colossians in the book of Ephesians, where he elaborates on the relationship of a husband and wife. In Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here again we see Paul saying that the husband is the head of the wife. And he appeals to the submission of the church to Christ. And so this is a loving, voluntary submission for the good of the family, for the good of the church. And it's patterned in the humility and submission of Christ himself. And so this may be a radical idea in our culture, but it is the call of a godly woman. It goes against the grain of modern culture. But the opposite of submission would be to put yourself and your perceived needs first. And this can manifest itself in a variety of ways. A lack of consideration, indifference to the needs of a husband, using him to get your way or fulfill your needs, whereas submission would mean committing your life to him, wanting good for him, being concerned with his well-being, accepting the demands of the relationship without bitterness. But this is not a one-way command. Paul also writes to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. God bless you. Now, Paul's command to wives to submit to their husbands wouldn't have been controversial in the first century, but it is in our culture. But the opposite is true for the command for his husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. In the Western culture, born out of the Christian worldview, we expect husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. But in the first century, this was a pretty controversial addition to a household code. The secular household codes of Paul's time had no directions for the husbands or the fathers or the masters. They were the head of the household, and they could pretty much do as they pleased. And so Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands. In the model of submission and humility of Christ, Paul's calling husbands to love their wives in the model of the love of Christ. The word for love that Paul uses is the Greek word agapeo. It is the word for sacrificial, self-giving love. It's the love that is modeled by Christ himself. So it's important to note that this is a reciprocal relationship. Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives. Because if husbands love their wives and lead them with love, the wives submit to them. This will bring about a renewed relationship. And if they're both in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll have a godly relationship, marriage, and a godly home. But if the wife submits to the husband and he's not loving her, this can lead to abuse, physical and emotional. 
And Paul's not telling wives to submit to this. A wife is to submit to a husband that is leading her with love, not one who is abusive or authoritative or demanding. One commentator writes of this reciprocal relationship. Should a wife, Christian wife, continue to submit to her husband if it results in personal abuse relating to the vices in chapter 3, rather than in spiritual maturity relating to the virtues in chapter 3? I think not. Should the measure of a husband's love for his wife be whether her devotion to the Lord Christ is strengthened and God's interest rather than her husband's for her life achieved? I think so. In Christ, God shows no favorites. God is for both husband and wife and in equal measure. In the Ephesians household code, Paul gives more specific commands to the husband. He says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The call for husbands to love their wives is in the model of a sacrificial love of Christ for his people. And these two commands go together. Wives submit to their husbands who are loving and following the Lord. They're not to follow their husbands into sin or to allow themselves to be abused or mistreated in any way. And Paul concludes the Ephesians commands the husbands, making this reciprocal relationship clear. He says, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So a marriage union of two believers will be a renewed marriage. It will be a marriage based on a lasting love, not a romantic feeling that can fade, but love as an action. Love is something you actively choose to do. Because romantic feeling may begin in marriage, it may lead to a marriage, but it can't sustain a marriage. A marriage is sustained through a genuine, persevering love that is the mark of a renewed relationship in Christ. In a renewed Christian marriage, wives are elevated, not diminished. In the agape, self-sacrificing love that Paul commands of husbands, They are to put the welfare of their wives and her needs first, not to be concerned with power or control. But the husband and wife isn't the only renewed relationship in Christ that Paul mentions here. Starting in verse 20, he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So the command for the children here is to obey their parents in everything. And this is a stronger command than submission that is given in reference to wives. Obedience assumes that commands will be given, rules will be set. Children then have a responsibility to comply with the instruction and the guidance of their parents. And in everything means this is a comprehensive command. Now this doesn't require children to obey immoral or sinful commands. But this is a willing obedience that respects the leadership of the parents. There's an assumed discipline on the part of the parents here. And that the children are commanded to accept and follow their parents' leadership. And Paul gives the reason that children should obey. For this pleases the Lord. In the Ephesians household code, Paul connects this to the fifth commandment. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. 
Right? Children's obedience of their parents is assuming that the parents are instructing them in the ways of the Lord. That their parents are leading them in living a godly life. And therefore, by obeying your parents in a life that is pleasing to the Lord, the children are promised that it will go well. If parents are instructing their children in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, obeying them would mean to follow Christ. And there are many promises for the believers and followers of Jesus. Paul also gives a command for the fathers as well. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So a renewed relationship in the Lord between a parent and a child has the children obeying their parents. And while anyone who has children knows that this is not the natural state of things, this is definitely a renewed relationship. Uh, For the father, though, not provoking their children, lest they become discouraged. We see in this the assumption of discipline and training in the Lord. The word translated as provoke means to make resentful or bitter. It seems to be a negative command to prevent the fathers from being overly harsh in disciplining their children, lest they become discouraged and not be willing to be instructed in the Lord. In the Ephesians household code, Paul adds this positive instruction to the fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord would be understood in the Colossians passage. The Bible is clear that disciplining your children is a crucial part of raising them in the Lord. But Paul here tempers the command to discipline and instruct them by saying, don't overdo it. Don't abuse your authority and discourage them from learning the ways of the Lord. The point of disciplining your children is so that they will respect your authority, and then you can instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Constant criticism and reprimand can be as destructive as none at all, and it can destroy the child's self-sense of worth and be discouraging. Paul calls for this discipline of children in a way that encourages them and guides them to living for the Lord. And so parents, we need to wrestle with this. What's the best approach to this? And there's obviously trial and error. None of us do it perfectly. But it should be done with a love of Christ in your heart for your child. Love, kindness, generosity, patience should be modeled in this renewed parent-child relationship. So we see the renewed relationships in Christ of a husband and a wife, children and parents. But Paul gives a third relationship, master and bondservant. And he covers this one a little more than the first two. Starting in verse 22, he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Bond servants were slaves in the first century. So it's important first to note that Paul is certainly not advocating for slavery. Scripture is clearly against discrimination and inhumane treatment of any kind. Paul actually undermines the whole first century culture in Galatians by declaring masters and slaves have equal status in Christ, as well as men and women. He wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So 
So here in the Colossians passage, Paul commands bondservants to obedience so that they can live out the example of Christ. Live according to Christ, walking in Christ, means right in the situation that we're in. So while we can't completely apply the master-slave relationship to our own lives, we can, even though there's a significant difference, consider how it applies to an employer-employee relationship. Verses 23 and 24 are the most applicable here. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Paul's command does give us things to think about as employees. The workplace can often be an over-demanding place. Bosses and managers and principals can mistreat their employees, abuse their authority. And employees sometimes can use this as an excuse to be dishonest in their work. Maybe taking supplies home, taking longer breaks than allowed, or doing as little work as possible just to get through the week. But Paul gives a different Christian work ethic here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do means regardless of how much you enjoy the task, favorable and unfavorable. Things you like doing, things you don't like doing. And work heartily. This is literally translated as work out of the soul. He's saying put your heart and soul into it. And the motive is not that you can impress your boss, but for the Lord. You are to do your work in the world as you are working for the Lord. Because as you work in the world as a Christian, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The temptation at work is often to do only the work that gets noticed by our bosses or to do as little as possible. And Paul is saying that we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in our jobs. Therefore, we are to give wholehearted service in the workplace in all of our duties. There's a pastor named Kent Hughes who tells of the story of an employer that he knows that was skeptical about hiring Christian employees because he once hired two seminary students who always seemed to be standing around talking about God instead of working. And to top it all off, one day the boss observed one of them going to the bathroom for 20 minutes. And when he came out, he said to his friend, I had the most wonderful time. I read three chapters of John in the John. Now, this kind of behavior at work goes against what Paul is saying. Following Paul's commands here would make us the best employees in our workplace, not the worst. Even in jobs that seem meaningless or like they're nothing, you could be a file clerk shuffling papers around or a ditch digger, digging up ditches and filling them back in again. For me, I often feel like I'm wasting my time teaching advanced mathematics to students who just want to stare at smartphones all day. But we can, in confidence, know that our work will not be wasted. Our work is being gathered up by God who brings everything to its successful culmination. Our reward isn't an earthly measurement. It may not even get noticed here. But we work in service of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. But this renewed relationship has two parties. Paul also briefly addresses the masters in in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In this culture, the first century, slaves were seen as property. 
Under Roman law, they had no rights at all. So this command to treat them justly and fairly would have been completely countercultural. And they're to do so knowing they have a master in heaven. And here we can apply to those of you who find yourself in a position of authority over others. There should always be an effort to preserve dignity, fairness, and respect, to avoid treating people as disposable assets or commodities. Understanding that you have a master in heaven that you will answer to means you will care about what happens to your employees. You will care that they're paid properly, that they're cons- you will be concerned about their health, their families, their well-being. Whatever side of the work relationship you find yourself on, even if it's middle management and you're on both sides, let your relationships be renewed as you are continually being renewed in Christ. Our renewal in Christ will result in renewed marriage relationships, renewed parent-child relationships, and renewed workplace relationships. Paul then switches topics from our renewed relationships in Christ to a renewal of our prayer life. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is an immensely important part of the Christian life. Paul's exhorting the Colossian believers to devote themselves to prayer. Believers are to pray habitually with perseverance. As we grow in the Lord, we will have a renewal of our prayer life. But prayer is something that many of us struggle with. I know myself, I get so caught up in what I need to do that I don't often stop to pray about it. And with this extremely long list of things I have to do pretty much every day, I can often push prayer to the bottom of the list. But I'm often convicted by the words of Martin Luther who said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. The more we have to do, the more we have to pray about. The busyness and hecticness of life can get in the way of us connecting with God in prayer if we let it. Especially today with technology, social media, smartphones, and all these things that have become a constant distraction in our lives, it often draws us away from God, distracting us from prayer. But scripture repeatedly speaks of the importance of prayers for those who are in Christ. And it's not simply mentioned either. It's commanded. We need to make prayer a priority. Because through God's word, we're told to make prayer a priority. In his book titled Prayer, Tim Keller gives an illustration of his wife Kathy of the urgent necessity of prayer. He mentions that it was right after 9-11, and it was an especially dark time for the country and New York City where he's a pastor. And his wife was struggling with Crohn's disease, and he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And during all of this, Kathy asked him to do something they hadn't been able to do in their marriage regularly that was pray together every night. She wanted to pray with him every night, and she used an illustration that crystallized her feelings well. He writes that she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget it? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't just let it slip our minds. 
He goes on to say that the outcome was, for both of us, the penny dropped. We realized the seriousness of the issue, and we admitted that anything that was truly a non-negotiable necessity was something we can do. Here, Paul not only commands the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer, but he adds being watchful with thanksgiving. Paul modeled this commitment to prayer and thanksgiving himself. In the first chapter of Colossians, he wrote, We always thank God for the the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. He goes on to say, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul had actually never even met the Colossians. It's interesting to note when we examine what Paul prays for, and I've mentioned this before, Paul prays for people, not for things. When you take a closer look, that is prayers for other people, they often have a kingdom focus to them. He prays for other people and their activity in the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom through the gospel. When he says that he has not ceased to pray for the Colossians, he says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he's praying for their sanctification. He's praying that their growth in holiness and their conformity to Christ and their bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. We see this even in his own prayer request, starting in chapter 4, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul wrote this letter from prison, as he mentions here. But His prayer request doesn't even say that I get released from prison. He doesn't even pray for a change in his circumstances. He prays that his circumstances will be used for the advancement of the gospel. That God may open a door for him to proclaim the gospel that he may make it clear. So a renewed prayer life not only includes consistent prayer, but it means prayers for the kingdom. Now, obviously, we're going to pray for our circumstances, as we should. We should definitely come to God with our prayers for health and well-being of our friends and our loved ones. But we shouldn't neglect to pray for their sanctification, for their salvation, for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God, the, the advancement throughout the city and the ends of the earth. A renewed prayer life will include praying for other spiritual life their sanctification, their salvation. It will include prayers for God's will, God's kingdom, the advancement of his gospel. And so our renewal in Christ involves renewed relationships, a renewed prayer life, and Paul continues with a third result from our renewal in Christ, a renewed witness. Starting in verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul commands them here to walk or to live their lives with wisdom toward outsiders. He's saying make sure you're living towards non-Christians in a Christ-like way. And this is the best use of our time. Because showing the love of Christ to others is a crucial part of your witness of Christ. 
Evangelism is the call of a Christian. We have good news and we are to share it. But no one will listen if we're not walking in Christ. Evangelism needs to be in both word and in deed. That means all of our life will be devoted to the proclamation of the gospel. Praying for the souls of others. Loving them with the love of Christ so that they may come to know him and his good news. Exhibiting a divine love of God in your life draws people to him. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Many times, however, Christians can be harsh in our tones, completely unloving. But the way we speak to others should be gracious. Now, this can be easier said than done, especially when the person you're dealing with is harsh and unloving towards you because you're a Christian. But our renewal in Christ should bring about a renewed witness. This doesn't mean compromising on the truth. Paul says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We're to answer people with the truth of Christ, in the gracious tone of Christ, living with the love of Christ in our lives, treating others with the wisdom of Christ. How we treat others, how we speak to others, how we love others should reflect the renewal of our hearts in Christ. And so we have renewed relationships, renewed prayer life, renewed witness through our renewal in Christ. But we don't simply do this in our own power. We do it through the Spirit working in us. And this takes place through our union with Christ because we take part in his death and resurrection. Through the death of Christ, our old sinful selves are put to death. We have been crucified with Christ. Through the resurrection of Christ, it's we no longer live, but Christ who lives in us. And so may God continue to work in all of us, renewing in us the image of Christ, renewing our relationships with our spouse, children, parents, employees, or bosses. May your prayer life continue to be renewed, that you grow to seek God more and more, that you pray for others, their sanctification, their spiritual growth, the advancement of the gospel, the coming of the kingdom of God. And may your witness be renewed, that you live out your love of Christ and your union with Christ, showing the love of Christ to all of those around you. May your speech be gracious, and may you shine the light of Christ to your neighbor, answering them how you ought to. And if any of you have not come to be renewed in Christ through faith, it's through faith that we become a new creation in Christ. It's through faith that we are renewed into his image, and it's those who have faith that will be completely glorified in the new heavens and a new earth with Christ for eternity. Our renewal in Christ only takes place through faith in him. So put your faith in Jesus Christ so that your heart may be renewed, and he'll renew your relationships, your prayer life, and your witness of him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God of grace and mercy, your merciful power overcomes our shameful nature. Continue to change us from depraved sinners into the glorious image of your Son. We want to glorify you by becoming what we're created to be. Glorify yourself by creating our hearts anew, that we may glorify you in our newness of life. We can't renew ourselves, but only with your Spirit. It's through your power that we have our renewal in Christ. 
which gives us renewed relationships, prayer life, and witness. It's only in your power that we are glorified in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.